Welcome to Nightlight. I spoke last night with a close friend whose wife, also a close friend, just went to be with the Lord. Now, for believers in Jesus, it's no empty religious euphemism to refer to death that way. She did go be with the Lord. She is with the Lord now. But at the same time, from our side of things, here in these shadowlands, she died. My friend will spend his first Christmas apart from her. A new sunrise will not change that painful truth. Not for a while, anyway. One day it will. But until that day, the pain of loss is only somewhat eased by the ultimate truth of the day that is coming when death will be dead and we will all be restored to each other. My friend is a doctor, so he's up close and personal with human pain and suffering and loss. For over 50 years, he has dealt with it in many different forms. But he said that he was now tasting and touching and being touched by the real, full, tangible experience of grief and loss. And it was easily pushing out any form of self-comfort he might have imagined himself to be able to carry inside. He felt distant, removed from any sense of real life. When all those feelings subsided, as they must for us to be able to emotionally survive, his quiet emotional landing spot was mostly a place of just feeling numb. Then the wave of inner awareness of this new reality of her being gone would crescendo again and he would have to sit in it and just cry. While we were talking, I was tempted to say the expected things, you know. Oh, yes, I know, I understand. Now, I might be excused for saying those words because after 50 years of pastoring and caring for people and being with them in the worst times of life, I guess I might be permitted to say, I understand. But I caught myself, stopped myself from saying that. I didn't say those words because both my friend and I know the truth. I do not understand, and I cannot understand. I can only assume that I know. I was on the outside. He was on the inside. I did not know and could not understand. I've never lost a spouse or a child. I've only been with many who have. So I can understand what it is to be with such pain. I do not yet know such pain for myself as the result of being inside of it myself. As we got off the phone, I was left with the awareness that at this late stage of my life, I have been spared many sorrows. I've tried to help others face those sorrows. I know I can help people who are addicted to alcohol, though I've never been a drinker, but I have been an addict. There are many kinds of sins I've helped people deal with, not because of my personal experience with their unique form of sin, 
but because I have been bound and deceived and self-centered in my own sin. And I've known freedom from it by, by grace. But when it comes to the ultimate loss, such as my friend is now enduring, my experience of close proximity to death is just not the same as his. I know enough to know that I don't know. And all the empathy I can muster is just a tiny shadow of the real experience. As I returned to my daily issues, I wondered just how much or how little I truly know about ultimate issues and how my core self would respond should I suddenly be forced to enter into that level of knowing instead of just thinking that I know. Today, Mary has a toothache. Uh, Of all the pains we have battled through, her periodic tooth pain has been at the top. Good and regular dental care has not warded off certain periodic emergencies, and I'm paralyzed when that happens. I, I want to help. I want to rescue. But I am reduced to a helpless feeling of inner ineptness that makes me worse than useless. I feel and maybe act like a small child who wants to help, but who becomes just another difficulty to have to be tended to instead of giving any help. Husbands usually want to fix things, and I cannot fix this. Oh yes, I can pray. Of course I'll pray. I do pray. But my prayers feel tentative and impotent when it comes to praying for Mary's teeth. It comes from some place deep inside me that is is better than it used to be, but obviously still not whole. I can measure some improvement because my prayers can make the pain decrease, which used to never happen. But my prayers do not bring full, complete relief. So I am making progress, but not enough, obviously. And I catch myself whenever we have happened to be talking to other people about her tooth pain. I I find myself describing her pain, but in terms that make me the center. It's the worst thing I've ever been through, I'll say. When he had to pull her red tooth with no way to anesthetize, anesthetize it because of the nature of the swelling, I thought I was going to die, I'll say. It was Mary's tooth, Mary's pain, but all I seem to be able to describe is how her pain made me feel. Yes, I know from a certain point of view that that's natural, normal, understandable. We would always rather be the one in pain than to have to watch our loved ones suffer. But I know me well enough to know that what I'm describing is not just that. My focus on myself is not that noble. I'm expressing how her pain causes me to suffer. It's a broken place in me. We get to the dentist. The correcting care is given. She recovers, and I return to my conscious feelings of strength and security. But the reality is there is a place deep inside me where I never feel it is okay And whenever that place is touched by real pain, the tremor inside me turns into a full quake. 
And at that moment, I am fully in touch with my weakness, my lowest self. God is not the cause of the toothache. He's certainly at work, though, in dealing with me and in and with Mary to bring us both to a place of greater trust and rest and freedom and faith. Underneath that weakest, lowest self are the everlasting arms. And even when I feel I'm falling, I'm still aware on an even deeper level that I am, we are going to be carried through whatever is wrong and eventually all will be well. Not because I can fix it, but because Jesus promised he would never leave us or forsake us. So I hit my very lowest and find that even lower still, he is there. And that then becomes a help to me, and I grow stronger in facing my weakness. But the process that makes me grow stronger by making me face my worst is the necessary working out of things I don't even know I need to face until I have been forced to face them. Mary can tell you what's going on in her, and I can tell you some of what's going on in me, but neither of us fully knows the whole story of our own particular private lessons. Saying all that is to say, because of this truth, I have learned not to be too free with the use of words like, I understand. With one who is facing a sorrow, I have never really had to face, but only observed. Now, Jesus told us we are to pray that we will be kept from the hour of testing and that we are to pray to be delivered from evil. Some of us seem to have been allowed to face battles and sufferings that seem unimaginable to others of us. Mary's tooth, my panic. On the other side of the street, maybe far worse battles people are going through. And on the other side of the world... Suffering takes on far worse manifestations. There are mysteries here. And let's just say for now that it seems that God knows which ones of us must be allowed to face certain things and which ones of us need to be protected from certain things and which ones of us are better by having to face them when we have had to face them. This is never to assume that God is the ultimate cause of the suffering. We, we know that. Uh, I would hope my audience knows that and knows it well enough that I shouldn't have to say it. But for the benefit of someone who may not have heard us before, God is not the source of evil of any kind. But because evil exists and we cannot figure out fully why on this earthly plane, we must wait for deeper understanding, which will eventually be given, but maybe not in this life. So we embrace the promise of God that he will either keep us from or keep us through the hour of trial. Either way, he who has begun a good work in us will complete it, and one day he will wipe away every tear from all eyes. This truth used to be a huge comfort for believers when we were far more scripturally wise and had a greater degree of spiritual understanding and, to be honest, a deeper level of devotion and love for Jesus. But our generation is terribly ignorant and weak. 
And our love for Jesus is often more religious sentimentalism than core adoration. So promises of eventual full healing and victory in spite of our earthly struggles are treated in many cases like, quote, pie in the sky by and by religious hokum. Even if we don't admit that, that's often how we see it. We don't want to hear that kind of thing. We want victory now, and we want victory in such a way that protects us from the struggle. As a result of our lack of love and wisdom, we are left with greater inner battles with fear and unbelief than we would have if we embraced reality which Scripture will give us. So shakings are a necessary disguised gift. They allow us to face ourselves as we really are. And then, thankfully, they don't leave us there, but then allow us to go deeper into a place of intimacy and trust with God. We in this present culture are living in a greater amount of randomness and chaos than in previous decades. I hear people speak quite often of uncertain times. We're living, they say, in uncertain times. Well, when were we living in certain times, for heaven's sakes? Yet, I do understand what we mean when we say that. Even in the turbulence of the 60s and the moral collapse of the 70s and the rising tensions of the 80s, there seemed to be still, in the face of all that, a certain stabilizing bedrock of trustworthy ground we could stand on. That ground is now shaking more than ever. And though it is hard to endure, it's a great opportunity for us to observe ourselves and how we are really in, 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 in the time of shaking. What are we really like? How much of our inner world is disintegrating because it has been far too tied to the crumbling outer world? Can you observe yourself enough to see where you are and where you're not? These current shakings, all of them, in every level of society, were not created by God or sent by God. They were created by the Chinese communist imperialism or Western materialism or leftist radicalism or socialist dogma or religious ignorance or conservative isolationism or middle-class indifference or racial unforgiveness or sexual licentiousness or Christian naivete. Do you want me to go on? We could go on with our list of what human choices have done to create this mess that we now call uncertain times. But God is certainly speaking through these uncertain times. Are we listening? It is not a time in which we can get away with merely being optimistic about the future. Optimism is a silly form of whistling in the dark. To quote Fleming Rutledge from her sermon called Whispers in Darkness, she says, The church cannot survive on sentiment and nostalgia. If we try to do that, we will wake up at midnight and discover that our lamps are going out. Sentiment, nostalgia, optimism, 
These are weak, thin fuels. We need premium oil for our lamps if we are to keep the light of the church burning in the time of trial. Christianity is not for sissies. We need to understand the difference between optimism and real hope. When speaking with my friend about his ongoing grieving time, we didn't just commiserate. We didn't sit in morbid silence, only broken by periodic phrases of maudlin sorrow. We laughed, or we at least chuckled, but, but it was real chuckling. We spoke about life, life which is past, life which is now, both in heaven and here, and life to come. We were not using shallow religious terms like, well, she's in a better place, or God needed her more in heaven, or things will get better with time. No, thankfully, neither of us resorted to any of that. We spoke of solid, concrete realities, just the same way we've spoken of those realities in happier times. For if they were real then, they are real now. And if they were not real, if they're not real now, they weren't real then. We spoke of the ongoing battles here that are all working together for our good in bringing us finally to the completion of all battles. While at the same time, giving the proper place to our present earthly sorrow and struggles. It was not optimistic whistling in the dark. It was hopeful declaration of light. Let me remind us again, though I have said it many times, hope in Scripture is never referring to, quote, I hope things work out for good. But in Scripture, hope is a guaranteed good outcome that, though not yet seen or felt, is as solid and trustworthy as the Word of God Himself and will eventually become sight. I quote Fleming Rutledge again when she says, We need to understand the difference between optimism and hope. Optimism often rises out of a denial of the real facts. Hope, however, persists in spite of clearly recognized facts because it is anchored in something beyond. This time period, and she was referring when she wrote this to the period of Advent, this time period of Advent in the church year is about hope. We need to face up to the horrors of the 20th century and beyond and the apparent chaos and randomness of life, and then see if we can still say Jesus is Lord. This is the most serious matter, much more serious than many we've had to confront in our generation. Where is the evidence for the truth of our creeds in the view of senseless violence, arbitrary cruelty, meaningless suffering of the world? And I might add, political corruption, and international intrigue seeking to destroy the country like we have not seen since World War II. Now to carry on her thought, where is the evidence for the truth of our creeds in the view of the, the pandemic, the contrived and real racial conflicts, 
the violence fueled by leftist agitators, the obvious attempt to overthrow the United States as a nation by the treasonous actions of those seeking to overturn free elections and turn us into a banana republic, or a news media that is so feckless and foolish that they are actually pawns in the hands of our worst enemies. Is Jesus Lord then? What about the personal inner troubles and conflicts we now encounter that are made worse due to these greater outer conflicts? Is Jesus still Lord over our inner wars as we grieve and battle with the outer wars? The quote from Fleming Rutledge was taken from a sermon given during the season of Advent in 1996. Some Christians still understand the meaning of Advent. Those who come from church traditions which keep the Christian calendar. But sadly, though, for most of us, Advent is vaguely observed as a mere countdown to Christmas. And like so much of our excessiveness and misunderstandings related to the holidays, it is treated by most folks, if at all, as a sort of Christmas light, L-I-T-E, not L-I-G-H-T. But that was not the original meaning or purpose of Advent. Now I'll get to the meaning and purpose in a moment, but let me explain something first. Mary and I were discussing how this December nightlight message should go. I was feeling the need to continue to sound the alarm to keep us awake in battle in spite of hoping for a restful holiday reprieve, and and to keep pointing to the fulfillment of the ultimate event, the presence of the coming kingdom of God. Mary was saying that people still also need a break from the weight of the heaviness of things. They need joy. And she was not at all meaning by that that we need a little Christmas we need to whistle in the dark. We need optimism. No, that's not what she meant. She meant we need to just have a reprieve from the harsh realities of the current war. What she meant was that we need a heavenly perspective. In other words, we don't need optimism. We need hope. Nothing in all the church calendar provides a better platform for addressing both the darkness of the world and the light of life as Advent does, when understood correctly. Of all the seasons of the year, we are at the optimum time to address both the war and its eventual outcome, and are able to do so without being foolishly optimistic on the one side or naively escapist on the other. Advent is the time of a grieving world conversation about joyful heavenly things. It is the perfect setting for us to examine and experience the realities of our broken world with the power of light and love shining into it. You don't deny the brokenness and you welcome the light and healing power into the brokenness. So in that in that understanding, Advent is a necessity of embracing both the light and the dark. Not to mix them, which produces fog, but to see that the darkness cannot hold back the light. The incremental loss of understanding of Advent has brought us uh, to a place over the centuries uh, to where we 
we don't fully understand and therefore keep restating both our doctrinal misunderstandings and our corporate holiday celebrations. Uh, we miss the full meaning of, of the season and therefore we miss the, the truth that it was meant to communicate. So all the good of Advent can provide is lost to us if we don't see these two things held in tension. It's very helpful to all believers if we would corporately maintain a clear understanding of the message of Advent and as much as we can restore some corporate honoring of it at least in conversation, understanding, and prayer, like the Sabbath, we may keep our own private version of it with clear understanding. But the full power of of the Sabbath or Advent is only experienced corporately. So maybe we can restore some of that corporate energy here in nightlight with each other. Now, Advent these days that we're entering in the calendar, was originally meant to face the darkness of the world so that the coming light finally fully realized in the Incarnation at Christmas is a transformative and sudden sunburst in the midst of darkness. Instead, we have a dimly lit shadow of Advent in our minds that leads to kind of a semi-brighter Christmas If it's there at all, that leads to a tinsel-decorated false light we call the holidays. But when understood rightly, Advent is a full facing of just how bad things are. Did you hear that? Advent begins in the dark. And it's a full facing of just how bad things are. How dark it is. And this darkness sets us up to embrace the contrasting power of what is coming. Glorious now, behold him arise, King and God and sacrifice. There is a coming King who is God and who before he is crowned King by the world will be its sacrifice because of evil and darkness. It is the dark that makes us long for and see and welcome the light when it comes. It is the dingy gray of our worldly Christianity that causes us not to embrace the light, but to just tip our hats to it and make a counterfeit version of it with tinsel. It's the death of the sacrifice that makes the glory of the resurrection life meaningful and real to us to restore us it is the combination of contrasts within the advent season that is meant to make the impression on us that dark cannot overcome light it happens to land on the calendar right before christmas but was originally intended to speak as much if not more about the second coming than the first did you know joy to the world was originally meant to be a celebration of the second coming, not the first. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room in heaven and nature sing. Well, it's very applicable uh, applicable to Christmas 
Because it's also applicable to the second coming. Why? Because Christmas and the second coming are two phases of the same event. And that's what, that's what Advent understood. Uh, he rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the wonders, the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. No more let sin and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessing known far as the curse is found. That's true for Christmas, but it is fulfilled at the second coming. And in between Christmas and the second coming, all the truths of that are in war with an ongoing darkness. And Advent was meant to help us keep that in view. But we've, re- we've, we've managed to reduce this only to a concept of physical absence of light when we speak of darkness. But he comes in darkness. And we think, well, that just means he comes at night. No, he comes into a spiritual existence the Bible calls darkness. And it's intruded upon only by a Christmas star in most of our imaginations, but it actually was meant to be a portrayal of the invasion of the realm of darkness by the kingdom of light, and light, darkness could not withstand it. Ah, I've said that over and over, and I hope you're getting it. So we understand now that when we, uh, do not define things clearly. This is the reason Advent is disintegrating or has disintegrated into a form of pre-Christmas vagueness. But what do we lose when that happens? Well, we lose the wisdom that would come to us by facing the darkness in its worst and then seeing that darkness pushed out and obliterated by the invading light. John's pre Lewd in John chapter 1 of the Gospel of John. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shone into the darkness, and the darkness could not overcome it. Writer Neil Alexander explains this very well in a piece he wrote called A Sacred Time Intention. Is Advent a preparatory feast in preparation for the liturgical commemoration of the historical birth of Jesus in Bethlehem? Or is Advent a season to itself, a sacrament of the end of time, begun in the Incarnation and still waiting on its final consummation at the close of this present age? Is the content of Advent's message centered in eschatological dread, judgment, and condemnation? Or hope, expectation, and promise? Is Advent really the beginning of the annual cycle? Or does Advent bring the year to its conclusion? Well, the fact is that each of these either-ors are really both-ands. And it is precisely because we cannot eliminate one or the other, but must hold both of them in tension that we inherit this season under stress called Advent. 
shaped by darkness and light, dread and hope, judgment and grace, second coming and first coming, terror and promise, end and beginning. Now, at the risk of oversimplifying this, it will still help us to get these either-or lists in our mind and turn them into both and instead of either or. Darkness and light, dread and hope, judgment and grace, second coming and first coming, terror and promise, end and beginning. Isaiah chapter 60 verse 1 through 3, arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth and gross darkness the people. But the Lord shall arise upon you, and his glory shall be seen upon you, and the Gentiles shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Think of it this way. There's a building not only dilapidated from disrepair, but deformed from evil invasion. It's not only dysfunctional, but dangerous. It cannot be fixed up, but must be torn down and fully restored and put back in its place. Yet it will be the same original blueprint. It will be the same building, but without the destruction and evil elements. With all the full function and beauty it was meant to have. The demolition will appear to be utter destruction while it's happening. But the demolition is the necessary progress leading to full restoration. So don't be in despair at the necessary demolition. Every falling wall, every bulldozed pile of rubble, you can see demons fleeing at the destruction of the house they have taken over. Every exposure of dangerous elements is only for the eventual perfection that was meant to be and that is destined to come. That's how we are to live. That's where we are now. This is how we should be looking at whatever happens around us. Everything is for our good. Everything is for our sakes. All of it is worked together for our eventual completion of the original goal. Nothing is by chance. Nothing is up for grabs as if God is wondering how things will turn out or hoping things will be better. Even though he allows for freedom of choice making and makes room for various kinds of outcomes because of our choices, nothing can be mere chance and all will ultimately be fulfilled according to his design. Nothing can alter or hinder his original purpose. So even events that seem contrary to the good outcome end up working for the completion of that outcome. Our task is to love our loved ones and our enemies. We're getting a really good lesson right now in learning to love enemies. We shall keep this verse before us during these times, Romans chapter 13, Verses 10 through 12. Love works no ill 
to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the completion or the fulfillment of the law. Knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent. Some people, to hear them preach, you think it's it's getting dark and it's going to get darker and we're coming now into the night. People do come into their own personal, private variations of that. There are people in different parts of the world who seem to be going into a night time. That's the very reason I wrote Against the Night. Uh, Day is dying in the West. I adopted that from the old hymn, which was meant to prepare for the nighttime prayers. But I adapted it as a picture of the dying light of the West that was taking place during that period of our history in the 90s when the, the the light was beginning to be pushed out by all kinds of feckless, demonic, uh, evil uh, systems that we are now seeing it manifested in their full uh, identity. But uh, the night overall is not descending upon us. The night overall is far spent. The day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. You ought to put that verse in big letters somewhere where you can read it and see it every day. It's easy to become either overwhelmed by all that you feel responsible to deal with and then collapse under it or overwhelmed by it all to the point of running away from any wise response and then falsely seeking to comfort ourselves, either one. The only way to avoid either of these wrong responses is to love because if we love, we do not, we do not grow weary in well-doing. We do not become overwhelmed. Love will not be lazily self-indulgent in order to avoid demands and love will not try to fix the unfixable world until we become totally exhausted in the attempt. Love will simply love what is in front of it. No, we won't be able to do it perfectly, but if that is our focus, our aim, we will hit the target more and more, and in the process become progressively transformed from glory to glory by the Spirit of the Lord in us, and we will give ourselves over to him moment by moment, more and more. We will not grow weary when we love. We'll never grow tired of loving. In this way, everything ends up being for our good. It won't matter what events or demands or conflicts we encounter. They will all end up being for our good as we seek the good of those around us, even our enemies. So where are we now? I began describing a conversation about the deepest personal pain and loss a person can face and how I was aware that I lacked the ability in myself to truly respond to it. Then I told of some areas in my own life where regardless of my progress overall, I'm still very weak and know I'm easily shaken. 
I then took us into a larger viewpoint beyond our private personal weakness or even the deep sorrow of other people. And I challenged us to examine whether we are rising to the conflicts both in our private life and in the world at large or whether we are losing our footing. There's less and less of a place to stand securely, isn't there? And then as the chaotic year of 2020 moved on and brought us to this place, we find ourselves here now longing for maybe Christmas past, but needing first to stop and truly take advantage of the the message of Advent present. The Advent message is given in darkness, gross darkness people covered in darkness. The prophet Isaiah records the geopolitical world of his day when the monster empire of Assyria is taking over the whole world around him and people are nervously asking of those who are the watchmen on the walls in Isaiah 21, watchman, watchman, what of the night? And the strange but accurate reply came back, the morning's coming, but also the night. Here we see that strange mixture of Advent. We miss the point if we look for either morning or night, either light or darkness, either hope or despair. Advent is the darkness that gives way to the dawn, but the darkness is the necessary preparation for the bursting forth of the coming light. It is not that we look back at the baby in the manger and then look forward to his second coming. It is to the understanding that at his first coming, the incarnation, he set in motion the beginning of the end of the age then and will be completed with the second coming at the close of this age. And all that occurs between those two comings are of one piece. The king has come. The king is here. The king is coming. And whatever unfolding events have to occur along the way are all part of the necessary unfolding scenario that will eventually bring all darkness to an end, destroy all evil, and establish fully the kingdom that was first introduced on a bleak, lightless night in Bethlehem. So watchmen, what of the night? The morning comes, but it is still night. Jesus is called the bright and morning star. Why? The morning star is the bright shining heavenly light that dominates the night at its darkest, pointing toward full sunrise about to come. So as we watch the world around us shake in the dark and cry out to our watchmen to tell us what is the condition of the night, the answer is this. Though we have many voices offering prophetic visions which we must hear and discern, the best we can. We have a more sure word of prophecy, which we do well to take heed, as unto a light that shines in a dark place, until the day dawns and the day star arises in your hearts. Whether you are troubled by your own private personal battles and character flaws, or feeling crushed under the weight of the national or world chaos, We have a more sure word of prophecy, and we do well to take heed to it. It is our light shining, and it's shining brightest in our darkest places. 
and it will shine in our hearts and continue to shine until the day fully dawns. Let the day star arise in your heart now. Let the dark foreboding of the beginning of Advent, which always begins in the dark, arise in your heart first like the morning star. And let the vision of that fill you as a lamp to carry you through your darkness. For it is the preview and promise that the darkness is only serving to make place for the conquering light that is soon to dawn.